I'm back here on the Urology Care Podcast. I have a guest today who's going to introduce himself right now. Uh, my name is John Mulhall. I'm a urologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. I'm the director of sexual and reproductive medicine here. And I was the chair of the AUA's inaugural guideline panel on testosterone deficiency evaluation and management. That's correct. Dr. Mulhall served as chair on this panel that developed this new clinical guideline for diagnosis and treatment of testosterone deficiency. Dr. Mulhall, what's a guideline and how is it used in clinical practice? What do patients need to know about it? So a guideline is a document that is developed by a panel of experts, in this case 13 experts, who review the world's literature, looking at the best quality literature, coming up with recommendations for clinical practice for urologists and nurses and other doctors, in this case pertaining to the management of patients with testosterone deficiency. It is not a biblical dictum, but it is guidance to physicians so that they can optimize the care of the patient with testosterone deficiency. Can you please define low testosterone? So testosterone is a hormone which exists in our blood and can be measured using a blood test. And the panel, looking at the evidence that was available to us, make a recommendation that a testosterone level below 300 nanograms per deciliter is a reasonable cutoff for the definition of low testosterone. Now, low testosterone is different than the concept of testosterone deficiency. Testosterone deficiency is a combination of a low testosterone, as I've just mentioned, in association with symptoms and or signs. The symptoms include low energy, afternoon fatigue, decreased strength, decreased endurance, losing muscle, putting on fat, particularly around the middle, irritability, depression, low sex drive, erectile problems, decreased productivity at work, decreased response to exercise. And the signs include things such as bone density loss, low trauma bone fractures, elevated hemoglobin A1C, which is an assessment of sugar control. The challenge for the clinician, the doctor or the nurse who would be seeing you, is that the symptoms are very nonspecific. They are also the symptoms for many patients who have depression or chronic stress or chronic fatigue. But the combination of the low testosterone with these symptoms or signs is what defines testosterone deficiency. It's worthwhile mentioning that when measuring testosterone level, the guideline panel recommending using total testosterone level, a blood test done in an early morning fashion on two separate occasions using the same assay, the same test, in the same laboratory. So what are some conditions that are warranting measuring uh, one's testosterone levels? This is a very important consideration because there are medical conditions in men, even in the absence of symptoms or signs, where we recommend that a man have his testosterone level checked. And these include conditions such as unexplained anemia, bone density loss, the presence of diabetes, exposure to chemotherapy or testicular radiation, HIV AIDS, chronic narcotic use, chronic exposure to corticosteroids, male infertility, or pituitary disorders. So even in the absence of symptoms or signs, these are conditions where a doctor should give consideration 
to measuring an early morning total testosterone level. So now I'm going to ask a little bit about um, patients maybe with special circumstances. Um, First of all, how about how would you approach the testosterone deficient patient who has concerns about cardiovascular safety? Yes, this is a very important consideration because there are many men who warrant testosterone therapy who are being deprived of it because of physician or patient concern regarding the link between testosterone therapy and cardiovascular events. We explored this literature in great detail, and we recommend that patients be told that the presence of a low testosterone level and testosterone deficiency is a risk factor for the development of cardiovascular events such as heart attacks and strokes. And the literature supporting this is very robust. Secondly, we recommend that patients be told that there is at this point in time not enough evidence to say whether testosterone therapy is good or bad for future cardiovascular health. There is mixed data in the literature, but the more modern data would suggest that there is no true risk from testosterone therapy and the development of heart attacks. But the patients need to be aware that this is something that is discussed in the medical literature. Finally, if you've had a cardiovascular event, a heart attack or stroke, within the last three to six months, you should probably not get testosterone until you meet the six-month time point after that cardiovascular event. And this is based on the fact that in the recent trials, the trials have used that as an inclusion criterion. Wait for six months after you've had a cardiovascular event, if that has happened. I want to pose that same question to you, but now taking into consideration a patient who has fertility concerns. So from a physiological standpoint, if we give man exogenous testosterone, whether it be through a gel or an injection or a pellet or a patch, that will suppress the brain hormones. They're known as gonadotropins. And if you suppress the gonadotropins, then this will invariably lead to a reduction in sperm production, often to the point of being unable to produce any sperm. So therefore, the use of exogenous testosterone therapies is associated with infertility. In a male, irrespective of his age, who is testosterone deficient but expresses interest in current or future fertility, the use of exogenous testosterone should not be used. Now, the good news is that in many of those patients, they are candidates for alternative strategies, such as selective estrogen receptor modulator medications, such as clomiphene citrate, the use of aromatase inhibitors, such as anastrozole, and the use of human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG. These three strategies, which have specific indications based on the patient's hormone pattern, do not interfere with fertility. And in fact, in some men who have testosterone deficiency may enhance their fertility. So the bottom line is that if you're interested in fertility, you should do everything in your power not to use exogenous testosterone because it may impair your fertility. And that might be, albeit rarely, a permanent problem. How about testosterone deficient patients with concerns of prostate cancer, whether or not They have a history of prostate cancer in their family. Let's take that category of patients first. Someone who hasn't been diagnosed but has had a strong family history, say. 
So the link between testosterone and prostate cancer has been known for um, many, many decades. And Charles Huggins, uh, University of Chicago urologist, won the Nobel Prize for showing that in men with metastatic prostate cancer, when you remove testosterone, the cancer regresses. The label for testosterone products says that this medication, these medications, should not be given to men with prostate cancer. However, the last 10, 15 years have seen a change in the paradigm and a change in how we think of testosterone and prostate cancer. There are a number of important considerations in this regard. Number one, the panel, in consultation with the prostate cancer panel from the AUA, suggests that every man who has testosterone deficiency, who is considering testosterone therapy, who is 40 years of age or older, should have a PSA level checked to make sure that we're not giving testosterone to men who have occult prostate cancer. Secondly, the data when we reviewed it was crystal clear that there is no link whatsoever in the medical literature between the use of testosterone therapy and the development of new prostate cancer. Now, in fairness to your question, this literature was not necessarily in patients who were considered high risk. Let's say an African-American man who's 40 years of age with a first-degree relative who has prostate cancer. The literature was in the general population. But at this point in time, I feel very comfortable telling such a patient that there is no data linking testosterone therapy to the development of prostate cancer. The other group of men who are worthy of consideration are men who have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, whether they are on active surveillance, our post-radical prostatectomy, or a post-radiation. And the guideline will say that the patients should be informed that there is insufficient data to quantify the risk-benefit ratio to testosterone therapy in patients who have prostate cancer. And ultimately, it boils down to the fact that we have a small number of series with small numbers of patients falls for short duration of time. And at this point in time, we cannot quantify the risk-benefit ratio. You mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to just have you reintroduce to us the testosterone levels that clinicians will be looking for as a reasonable cutoff in support of the diagnosis of low testosterone. Yeah, so we have looked at a cutoff of under 300 nanograms per deciliter as a reasonable cutoff. And the reason we chose that is that when we look at the large testosterone therapy trials, using an inclusion criterion of less than 350 the average testosterone level in those trials was about 250 to 280. And therefore, to optimize the benefit and minimize the risk to patients, we chose a testosterone level of 300, understanding that that fails to take into account what that man's testosterone level was 20 years ago. And we know, for example, there are men who are currently 250, who 10 years ago were 750, or who were 350 10 years ago, and they are two entirely different patients. So in every guideline, the guideline document will always recommend to physicians, clinicians, that they use their clinical judgment in deciding whether they think the patient has testosterone deficiency or not. When a patient has testosterone deficiency and they go on testosterone therapy, we recommend that the clinician aim for the middle tertile of the normal range, the middle third of the normal range, which in most laboratories is going to be somewhere in the 450 to 600 nanogram per deciliter range. This will ensure 
that men who had baseline testosterone levels in the low normal range are not being overtreated, but will also ensure that those men who have high normal levels will not be undertreated by choosing the middle third of the range. Finally, I want to touch on follow-up care of men who are on testosterone therapy. What should we know about that? So it's critically important that the patient is evaluated from two standpoints at a time point after they start testosterone therapy. The first standpoint is measurement of their on-treatment testosterone levels. And that should be done somewhere between two and six weeks after initiating therapy, depending on which kind of therapy they are on. Just as importantly, the patient should be quizzed about their symptom improvement. If the patient has symptoms and or signs, our definition of success is not just the achievement of a physiological testosterone level, but also improvement in those symptoms and or signs. And while there are occurrences of men having improvement in symptoms beyond six months after starting testosterone therapy, the vast majority of patients in our experience and in the literature will have improvement within three to four months of starting testosterone therapy. And we recommend to clinicians that if a patient gets a normal testosterone level on testosterone therapy, but has no improvements in symptoms or signs at that time point, consideration be given to stopping the testosterone therapy at that time point. Dr. Moho, as we wrap up here today, I just want you to maybe give some uh, lifestyle advice to men who are looking to avoid, if at all possible, testosterone deficiency. What would you recommend? If you have testosterone deficiency, the medical literature will say that losing weight and exercising may increase your testosterone levels. The problem is that the magnitude of benefit derived from those maneuvers is actually pretty small, and it's unclear whether those changes in testosterone levels are sustainable or not. From the standpoint of preventing testosterone deficiency, much of it is most probably genetic, with approximately a 15% decrease in testosterone level per decade of life after 30 years of age. But there are certain medical conditions, as I've outlined before, which are associated with low testosterone, and it's worthwhile making an effort to try and avoid those conditions, and in particular, diabetes and obesity. So if we can do things to look after our weight and do things to try and avoid the uh, diagnosis of diabetes, that will go a long way towards limiting our risk of developing testosterone deficiency. And it may depend on what the man's age is, but is there anything you would recommend men ask their doctors about, whether it be low testosterone or testosterone deficiency? I think, as I've mentioned, the symptoms of low testosterone are fairly nonspecific. But if you have those symptoms, it wouldn't be unreasonable to mention those symptoms to your doctor and ask whether he or she believes a testosterone level check is warranted. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. John Mohall, and I want to remind folks that the full guideline is available now at www.auanet.org slash testosterone guideline. That's auanet.org slash testosterone guideline. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, the official foundation of the American Neurological Association.